Okay, yay, it'll be fun. And I won't make you like think or anything. We're just gonna like eat. I mean, maybe if you wanna share some stuff, you can, but it's gonna be very light, very light. So no quizzes, no tests, no nothing, all right? Okay, well we are, it's hard to believe, this is week five. So we are, when we are done with this week, we can officially say we are halfway through. And you guys are still here, which is amazing. Uh, I feel like this subject is incredibly fascinating. That's probably why you continue to come back, but it is certainly very challenging because we are confronting some um, assumptions and, you know, there's potential for whole new paradigms. And that's always very, very hard. And um, so if it feels hard, it's because it is hard. You are not dumb. This study is challenging. All right? So I just want to keep reminding you of that. Also, if you walk away with 10% of this content actually sticking and making sense, you will have walked away with something wonderful that will serve you the rest of your life. All right? We all have different capacities for retaining the material, um, all the things. So, again, we are not, we're not going to, like, beat up on ourselves. We're going to, you're here, and you're studying, and something is sticking. I promise. I promise. Um, so, today, I want to start by kind of reviewing what we've covered so far in our weeks together. All right? So, we're going to start with that. Our very first week together, we looked at two different views of heaven. We have the traditional view and what I am calling the biblical view, but that, of course, is still yet to be determined. We've got a few more weeks to go. We are building as we go. We also, that week, identified some reasons why most Christians are so committed to that traditional view, and those were the influences of Platonism, Gnosticism, and classic dispensationalism. Lots of big words that week. All right. And then in our second week together, we walked through Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw God's original intention for his creation. I called this, and will continue to call this, God's plan A. And it is written for you. I think I've written it on every listening guide that we've had because it is so important. It's written for you there at the top. Here is God's plan A based on Genesis 1 and 2. An earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth space called Eden, which God desires to expand throughout the whole world. That is a mouthful. Every phrase in the sentence is so loaded, and it is so important. Am I saying that you cannot have a, 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 a truly accurate, fully orbed understanding of heaven without an accurate understanding of Genesis 1 and 2? Yes, that is exactly what I am saying. That is exactly what I am saying, because Revelation 21 and 22, which is the Bible's clearest passage on the eternal state, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you read it with Genesis 1 and 2 in view. They're these big, important bookends of the Bible, and they are so interconnected. 
I did not say you could not go to heaven if you don't understand their Genesis 1 and 2. Y'all better not be like quoting that because that is heresy and I did not say that. I'm talking about a fully orbed, robust understanding of what we're studying this whole 10 weeks. Um, And we'll see even more clearly uh, how important Genesis 1 and 2 and this um, plan A and how it integrates with Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to spend an entire week, week 9, is just walking through Revelation 21 and 22. All right? So that was our second week together. In our third week together, we zoomed in on that temple theme. So part of our plan A is this cosmic temple. All right, so we zoomed into that temple theme and we wrote it like a zip line all the way from Genesis to Revelations. We made a whole bunch of stops in between. And in doing so, we were able to see that the Bible ends with an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called the New Jerusalem. And why is that? It's because the beauty and goodness of Eden has been expanded throughout the whole world. In other words, God don't need a plan B or C or D or E or F. Like plan A is just fine. And he is powerful enough to carry it out, even though we humans keep messing it up, right? Okay. Last week, we spent our time marinating in Isaiah's gorgeous poetic descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth. It was our active recovery week because we just kind of stayed in one spot. We just read the Bible together. I pulled out some things. We loved it. It was relaxing. It's like a spa day. All right? It was great. We saw an intense, intense emphasis on Gentile nations turning to the Lord and enjoying the new creation right alongside Israel as one people of God. The book of Isaiah, in fact, it ends with a worldwide worshiping community. Okay? We also saw an emphasis on perfect justice for the poor and the oppressed in a global Eden-like peace. Remember the weapons that are melted down, they're turned into gardening tools. We saw metaphor after metaphor describing lavish abundance and joy. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. According to Isaiah, life in the age to come will be a life totally provided for, totally happy, totally secure, and totally at peace, which is the longing of every human heart. And so everything we saw in this passage, just, it resonates at such a deep level. It's what we all crave. Well, today we are finally, okay, making our move into the New Testament. Okay? Are we excited about this? We're excited? Okay. It's a little, it's just a little more familiar to most of us, so it'll, a little bit, a little bit easier. Okay? Um, last week I laid out the eschatological, we're not afraid of that word anymore. What does eschatology mean? End times, right? So the end times, eschatological timeline of the Old Testament, uh, which is pretty simple. I just want to review that with you. It's at the top of your listening guide there. Uh, It's divided into two parts. You've got this present age of exile, 
uh, characterized by kingdoms of violent, evil empires, wickedness, idolatry, rebellion, all the human junk, okay? And then you have the second part, which is the future age of restoration, also referred to as the kingdom of God. This is where Yahweh returns to judge and save According to Daniel 2 and 7, which hopefully you got a chance to read that this week, according to those passages, he comes suddenly and with great power, which is why I added the big explosion. We needed an explosion in the middle because in the Old Testament concept of um, the eschatological timeline, the day of the Lord and the final resurrection, and in their mindset, everybody raises from the dead at the same time, all right? Day of the Lord, final resurrection, bam, it's huge. We're talking like earthquakes and fire and all the things, like Mount Sinai on steroids kind of thing. And then, bam, that ushers in the new age, the age to come, the kingdom of God. All right, so pretty simple. Um, In fact... Uh, it's really important. We understand this is, this is what every Jew that was familiar with the Hebrew Bible would have believed when Jesus came on scene. In fact, I want to show you this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I want to show you an example of this in the person of John the Baptist. So Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3. I don't know if I said 2. I meant 3. Luke chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse uh, 2 to give us a little context. It says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the vicinity of Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah there. John is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 7. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, oh, we've got Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And then he gives them this image. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Skip down to verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who's more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He is going to baptize you two options, with fire, with the Holy Spirit, or with fire. (laughs) His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. All right, so John is such a character. I I cannot wait to meet him, all right? there's, There's an intensity and an urgency to John's message, isn't there? And that's because John believed that the day of the Lord, the final judgment and resurrection that divides the two ages with the big Daniel 2, Daniel 7 explosion, he believed that was imminent. 
The Messiah had come, so it was time for those Daniel prophecies to happen, and it was going to be big. In John's mind, it was quite literally a turn or burn situation, and it was, it was coming. The axe is ready to go, which is why we have the scene we do in Luke seven. It is Luke 7. I think I have Matthew 11. That is Matthew's version of this, but we're going to stay in Luke. All right, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. All right, we're focusing on John the Baptist again here. Luke 7, 18. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking... Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? And at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. And so he replied to them. Well, first of all, before we get to the reply, let's talk about why John is asking this question. It is often taught that John asked this question because he was put in prison, and so he was becoming just real confused about his own calling and his own ministry. But that's really not it. John is wondering whether Jesus is the Messiah because his grand expectations of what the Messiah would do had not been met in the ministry of Jesus. There has been no day of the Lord. There has been no dramatic Daniel 7 style overflow or overthrow of evil world empires. George Ladd, who I cannot recommend this book enough, The Gospel of the Kingdom. Um, gosh, I think he wrote in the mid, like 1950s is when he was most active, um, maybe 60s, I don't know. But it's an old book. It is so good and it's not too thick. And everything I'm talking about today, this was where I started. This is a great primer in the kingdom of God theme. So George Ladd, L-A-D-D, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, anyway, in that book, he says this. He said, why did John ask that question? Because the prophecy of Daniel did not seem to be in process of fulfillment. Herod Antipas ruled in Galilee. Roman legions marched through Jerusalem Authority rested in the hands of a pagan Roman, Pilate. Idolatrous, polytheist, immoral Rome ruled the world with an iron hand. And here was John's problem. And it was the problem of every devout Jew, including Jesus' closest disciples, in their effort to understand and interpret Jesus' ministry. How could he be the bearer of the kingdom, while sin and sinful institutions remained unpunished. You read the Gospels like, why couldn't these guys get it? Because they were going off that Old Testament timeline. There was mysteries that had not yet been revealed about the way the kingdom would come. So take a look at Jesus' response now to John's question. Are the one, or should we expect someone else? Chapter 7, verse 22, we're still in Luke. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, 
The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You guys, there should be some familiarity. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, those new creation passages that we have spent some time in. What John had to realize... And what all of the disciples had to realize and what every second temple Jew living at the time of Jesus had to realize is that the ministry of Jesus altered the timeline. It changed it. And so I want to take a look at those changes. All right, so right under our Old Testament timeline, we have the New Testament eschatological timeline. Now, you will notice it's still essentially divided into the present age and the future age, the age to come, referred to as the kingdom of God. But you'll notice on this timeline, the two ages overlap. And instead of one main event, there are two main events. What was not foreseen in the Old Testament or in the intertestamental period is that there would be a special resurrection event happening within the present age. Like it would happen in real real history and then history would keep going and it wouldn't be till a whole lot later that the whole day of the Lord and the final resurrection would happen. Like they had no, there is nothing. You can read the Old Testament and reread it. You can read the intertestamental writings, um, which our Catholic friends have in there is the Apocrypha. You can read all those. And there was just no concept of a human being rising from the dead and being fully glorified in the present age. That was 100% an age to come reality. And yet here we've got Jesus. Changes everything. It changes everything. So Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father as a fully resurrected, glorified human within the present age of exile was absolutely shocking. They had no concept of that. Now, according to Jesus, his ministry, still in the present age, but according to Jesus, his ministry was the start of the age to come. He was constantly talking about how through him, the kingdom of God was actually breaking through into the present age of exile. So let's go ahead and look at some scriptures together um, and try to get our minds around this. Look first with me at Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. All right, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So this is Jesus' gospel, right? Here it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 4. Turning a little bit to the left, Matthew chapter 4. Verses 
I'm going to pick up in verse 17, Matthew 4, 17. Very similar wording here. From then on, Jesus began to preach. What was his message? Well, here's the main idea of Jesus' sermons right here. Repent because the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God, classic dispensationalists will disagree. Their case is not a strong one. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So same thing that he's saying um, in in the the passage in Mark. Now, I wanted you to go somewhere else in the book of Matthew. This is a really cool passage. Matthew chapter 12. We're actually going to be here twice today. Matthew chapter 12. Again, we're in the teachings of Jesus. I'm going to pick up just for some, I want us to have some context. I'm going to pick up in verse 22 of Matthew 12. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons by Beelzebul, ruler of the demons. That is a heavy charge against Jesus. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. He's about to tell them what idiots they are, basically. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Verse 28 is what I want us to hold on to. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, and that that is what Jesus was driving out demons by, the Spirit of God, all right? If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone... Enter a strong man's house. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder the house? Jesus is saying it is absolutely absurd for you to say that I am driving out demons by the power of the prince of demons. No, no, no. You have it very, very wrong. I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And if you want to talk about demon and Satan's, guess what? There has been a partial binding because I am king. Wow. I mean, it's pretty, it's like straight up, right? Powerful passage. All right, here's a quote from uh, Scott McKnight in his book, The King Jesus Gospel. He says this, we dare not miss, we dare not miss something here. And he's speaking specifically of Mark 1, 14 and 15, and then Matthew 12. To speak of the kingdom of God arriving or being near is to evoke a host of images, ideas, and expectations from the Bible onto Jesus' world of Essenes and Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots, the guys that were the religious elites of the time. From the promises of Abraham, of a land, and people and kings, to God's promise to David of an eternal king and kingdom, right on through the prophetic visions that we looked at last week of shalom and justice and heartfelt Torah observance. All of this and more, Jesus balled up into the word 
kingdom and said, get ready, it's almost here. In fact, in some way, it is already here. For Jesus, kingdom carried the weight of his entire eschatology, and he announced that his eschatology was about to turn to the final chapter. It's big. But you can't understand how big that is if you don't have an understanding of the Old Testament and what's going on back there. It's so huge. And, and it's why Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Now, John, in his gospel, John just goes kind of rogue, right? He's like, he's got his own thing going on. I love the gospel of John. I love studying that with you guys. But he prefers to use the phrase eternal life, eternal life, which it literally translates life unto the age, the future age, the kingdom of God age, the age of life and restoration. Uh, restoration. So it's very parallel to the kingdom of God theme. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. Oh, what is it? Going to heaven when you die? No. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And so here's the claim Jesus was making. Through relationship with him, we can experience life of the future age right now. Right now. So in the Gospels, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, eternal life, the age to come, those are all interchangeable terms, and Jesus talked about it a lot. What makes Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God so tricky is that sometimes, as we've seen, he speaks of it as being a present reality. It's here. It's come. It's upon you. Other times, he speaks of it being a future reality. So let's take a look at some of those verses. All right? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Are you guys tracking with me? Do we need to go back? Anywhere are we doing all right? Okay. I promise I'll, br- I'll bring it all together. It'll make sense once we go through all these scriptures. All right. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is obviously speaking of a future reality. Okay. Mark 14, 25 is our next stop. And there are a whole bunch more. I tried to pick scriptures that were the kind of straightforward, wouldn't need a lot of explanation. Mark 14, 25. This is the first Lord's Supper. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, I will, not, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So again, He's looking ahead at that new age, that future age to come. And then this is not Jesus speaking, but it's, it's Paul. 
um, giving us really clearly outlining the implications of Jesus's gospel for uh, for our future. First Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians. We're going to spend a whole week in this passage. It's really important for our understanding of heaven. But I'm just going to read a portion of it to us today. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. We've talked about how Christ has resurrected. He is the first fruits guaranteeing our future resurrection. And then verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. That's all rival kingdoms are going to be done and gone with, all right? Um, Verse 25, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, and it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. There's Paul explaining things for us. Verse 28, when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Lots of words there. Basically what he's saying is at some time in the future, all the rival kingdoms, all the enemies, including very significantly sin and death, will be completely obliterated and done. And God will be all in all. So again, this hasn't happened yet. It will happen at the second coming of Christ, which will coincide with the second great resurrection event and the final judgment. At that time, on our timeline, at that time, so the first coming of Christ, resurrection of Christ, he says the kingdom is here, so there's a sense in which it has started. It's invaded this present age, right? But it isn't until that second coming of Christ which is the resurrection of everybody else, the day of the Lord, the final judgment, right? It isn't until that that second coming of Christ that the kingdom of God will be fully consummated. The only will done on on earth will be God's will, the eternal state of full restoration described in Revelation 21 and 22 will finally be a reality. All right, so that is the basic New Testament eschatological timeline. Now, you can add some bells and whistles. You can add, you can accessorize this guy, all right? Depending on your interpretation of Revelation 20 and the millennial kingdom. All right, so some of you are going to want to add rapture, and you're going to want to add tribulation, and you're going to want to add the thousand-year reign, and there's like three resurrections, and there's five different stages. And it's, I mean, you can like totally just go to town, on this basic timeline. But this is the basic timeline. This is like the bare minimum, all right, that we see in uh, Revelation. You certainly don't have to add any bells and whistles. And I think it's important for you to know because some of us have never been outside our little bubble, theological bubble. Um, Large, huge swaths of the Christian tradition since the earliest days of the church, this timeline as it stands is it. That overlap is the millennial kingdom. That would be a more figurative interpretation of what's going on 
in Revelation 20. Lots of Christians throughout history and today believe that. Are they right? Are they wrong? I don't know. I mean, it depends on if I'm talking to somebody who holds that view. I'm like, oh, yeah. And if I'm talking to somebody that's got all the bells and whistles, I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, my views have changed. I've held every view at some point. And so what that tells us is it's just not clear. So I got opinions, but that's all I got. <laughs> that's all I've got. All I know for sure is that when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, I 100% confident he was not thinking of one solitary, very obscure chapter in the book of Revelation. He was thinking of the entire scope of Scripture with an eye to the fulfillment of God's plan A. That was his job. There's way more certain, way more likely he was thinking of Genesis 1 and 2 and Isaiah and Joel and Ezekiel and, and Daniel and all. So go to town, just put whatever you want in there. That's fine. Just know there's a lot of Christians in a lot of places that don't add a darn thing and we're okay. All right? This is the basic timeline of the New Testament. All right? In this room, I hope there's tons of different views. There should be multiple views on the millennial kingdom. That's just the way it is. It's not a salvation issue. It's not clear. <laughs> we have our opinions. And there we go. All right? Okay. I made a, decided, a decisive effort. I wasn't going to talk about even what my view is, although you'll probably be able to figure it out by the end. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't really... It doesn't really matter all that much. All I've got to offer is an opinion. All right. So let's bring this all together. All right. Let's kind of begin to land the plane. Turn your listening guide over. Um, and you'll see I put tons more scriptures there. If you want to look them up, you can. I pulled the ones that I thought would be the best for us to read together. Lines Having established the basic eschatological timeline of the New Testament, I want to... Come up with a good definition of the kingdom of God. And I didn't want to do the work of coming up with my own, so I'm borrowing from scholar Anthony Hokema, who's written a wonderful book called The Bible and the Future. He's not a bells and whistles on the timeline guy, just so you know. But here's his definition of the kingdom of God. The reign of God, dynamically active in human history through Jesus Christ, the purpose of which is the redemption of God's people from sin and from demonic powers and the final establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. I like that definition because it's very comprehensive. It puts Jesus at the center. It mentions the redemption from sin. It brings into view the demonic powers, which is a huge part of uh, the work of the kingdom of God. And then it ends us up in the new heavens, new earth. So I, there's all kinds of different ways to define the kingdom of God, but that one kind of covers all the, all the important bases. I like it. Now, I've, I've included some other things from his book, some other kind of qualifiers. The kingdom must not be understood as merely the salvation of certain individuals or even as the reign of God in the hearts of his people. It is that, but it's way more than that. 
It means nothing less than the reign of God over his entire created universe. And that's a good word for theological conservatives like me who have the tendency to reduce the work of God to individual salvation decisions and church growth, right? Kind of the, um, well, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket anyways. So who really cares what's going on out there? Those social justice warriors have lost their minds. And, um, you know, I'm just going to stay here and teach my Bible studies and be right. Good theology, right? I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded that God does care what's happening out there very much um, because he plans to restore the whole entire thing. So people like me need that qualifier. All right, there's another qualifier. The kingdom is not man's upward climb to perfection or progress, but God's breaking into human history to establish his reign and advance his purposes. In other words, we can't make the kingdom of God happen. And this is a good word for those who lean more to the left and have a tendency to ignore what God is doing in human hearts, focusing instead on socio-political reform, social justice, all of those things, right? And it... <laughs> It's really important that we understand it is no better to be on the right of truth than it is to be on the left of truth. And so we've got to hold both of these realities, that God cares about the entire world way outside the walls of this church, and he cares about every human heart in this room, and he cares that every person does make a decision to follow Jesus. So it's a both-and thing, and, and humans have depending on whether they lean right or whether they lean left theologically to pick just one. Kingdom of God encompasses it all. And so it's important that we hold both. All right, so that's the definition. Moving on. Second point, and this is really where we're really going to drive it home and hash out some of the implications. The kingdom of God is already inaugurated through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who is the perfect human imager and king. He is the fulfillment of the plan A, where Adam and every God-appointed human representative since Adam has failed, Jesus succeeded. (laughs) And this has some profound implications. And here's some of the implications. Number one, this aspect of the kingdom means that eternity is now. Eternity is now. There is a sense in which heaven is a present reality, not for everyone, but for those who are in Christ. As we established in our first week together, our focus tends to be on getting ourselves into heaven. But the focus of the New Testament, God's focus, is getting heaven into us. We tend to pray, get me out of here so I can go live up their kinds of prayers. But if you look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it's a get what's happening up there down here kind of prayer. Jesus did not define eternal life as going to heaven when we die. He defined it as knowing the only true God and the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. 
And that kind of relationship, that kind of intimate knowing, all benefits that go along with it, that is available right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, There is an illustration in this book by Dallas Willard. Um, Dallas Willard is a great example of philosophical theology. He's a philosopher. He's written some really famous books. He's brilliant. I have a hard time reading him. I'll be honest. Like, I just have to read really, really slow. Um, Or at least this book. He has one on spiritual disciplines that I got through easier. All right, this book is... Okay, I've had it for like 10 years, and I'm still... Like, I keep trying again, all right? Um, It's making more sense to me after this study. Turns out, I just didn't have a category for what he's talking about. (laughs) Because I was so like, escape and go to heaven when you die. Like, that, and he's just... Anyway, illustration. I'm reading to you from his book. And I could have put it in my own words, but I ran out of time. So I'm just going to read you his. All right. He says this. He says, as a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. I don't, I don't even know what that's like. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electric electrification administration extended its lines into the area where we lived and electrical power became available to household farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, it could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think that the comparison, the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it is, but it will help us understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent, or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their iceboxes and cellars, their their, uh, scubbards and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines, and their radios with dry cell batteries. Repent. The power that can make their lives far better was right there near them, where they were. By making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not, quote-unquote, enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others couldn't afford it, or so they thought. Another image that may help us understand this available aspect of the kingdom, which is so easily overlooked, think of visiting in a home where you have not been before. It's a fairly large house, and you sit for a while with your host in the living room or on the veranda. Dinner is announced And he ushers you down a hall, saying at a certain point, turn, for the dining room is at hand. Or more likely, here's the dining room. Similarly, Jesus directs us to his kingdom. In these images, something absolutely crucial to Jesus' message is emphasized. There is no suggestion that electricity or the dining room hasn't happened yet but is about to happen or about to be there possibly if someone welcomes it or lets it come. Rather, they have now become available. And similarly, 
The kingdom of God is also right beside us. It is indeed the kingdom among us. You can reach it from your heart with your mouth through even the shaky and stumbling confidence and confession that Jesus is the death-conquering master of all. To be sure, the kingdom has been here as long as we humans have been here and longer, but it has been available to us through simple confidence in Jesus the anointed only from the time that he became a public figure. It is a kingdom that, in the person of Jesus, welcomes us just as we are, just where we are, and makes it possible for us to translate our ordinary life into an eternal one. It is so available that everyone who, from the center of his or her being, calls upon Jesus as master of the universe and prince of life, will be heard and will be delivered into the eternal kind of life. Not later after we die, but right now. Isn't that good? I, I, just, I just couldn't have done it justice. So that's why I had to give you a little story time this morning. So, so good. That's like the one part of the book I understood pretty easily. All right, so that's the first implication. Eternity is now. Second implication And I love this. And this is something I haven't really studied much before. Uh, I'd never studied Matthew 12. um, But the second implication is that stage one of Satan being bound is complete. Has it ever struck you? You're reading through the Gospels and you're like, dang, there's a lot of exorcisms. This is kind of creepy. I don't know. It's really struck out to me me because I've never actually seen an exorcism. But they're all over the Gospels. There's frequent interactions with demons who, interestingly enough, always know exactly who Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? If simply believing the facts about Jesus' identity uh, is a requirement for salvation, the demons are in. All right? Like, their theology is solid. It's a good word for me. Sometimes I care only about right theology, right theology. I'm like, there's way more to it than that. That is obviously not the golden ticket. <laughs> I want you to go back with me. I want to I read it again with this view. It's just really, really cool. Matthew chapter 12. We won't read the whole thing. We'll pick up in verse 26 since we've already read some of it. Matthew 12, 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the key verse for us right now, verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless... He first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is, look, I'm not driving out demons with the power of Satan. I've bound Satan. There has been a partial binding, obviously. Satan is not fully bound. But neither is he fully free to do what he wants. His destruction has begun. And so when we are told to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, when we are told to resist the devil and he will flee from you, we can confidently do so. 
knowing that the kingdom has come. The serpent crusher reigns. Satan has been put on a leash. And new creation is on the move. And so when we think about spiritual warfare, we think about Satan, and we think about the forces of evil, they are real. They are powerful. We ought to be aware, but they are not ultimate. Stage one of Satan's binding has been accomplished. And by the way, those who would hold an amillennial view, which I don't even like that name because people who hold an amillennial view, all means not. They do not believe there's not a millennium. They believe it's figurative. It's that gap. It's the overlap, right? And one of the reasons you think, well, Revelation 20 says that Satan is bound and he's obviously not bound. So they would think, well, in a sense, he, stage one of his binding has begun. So that's how they square that. I just think it's important that we don't look at brothers and sisters and think, what idiots? They're not idiots. They're, they're piecing stuff together just like everybody else is. There's good explanations for different views on, on, on both sides. So just thought I'd throw that out there. The binding, the binding of Satan is a big um, issue when you're talking about views on eschatology. All right. So really good news. Satan's on a leash. Satan's on a leash. Third implication. Is it third? Okay. Third implication. Oh, this one's so good. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to read a scripture. I'm going to make a quick point. We'll move on. But the third implication is the availability of the life in the spirit. Life in the spirit. Do you remember that Joel prophecy? When Joel looked ahead to new creation, the big eschatological like, bam, 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 it's here for Joel was the outpouring of God's spirit. It says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And the whole like, and that's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, right? Another indicator that the kingdom's here. It's here, right? Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're also going to spend, I think, an entire week in Romans chapter 8. There's a few other places we could hang out, but it's my favorite, so we'll probably land here. Uh, Romans chapter 8, I'll start in verse 18. Paul is writing here, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. He's talking about the age to come. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What are the first fruits? It's the, ta- it's the foretaste, right? You going around Costco, you getting your sample? That sample is real. It may not be the whole thing. That sample is real, right? And that's what he's saying. The spirit is not the whole thing. There's more to come, but oh, he's, he's real. And he, uh, in Ephesians, he said he's the down payment, right? He's the guarantee of the full-blown inheritance that is yet to come. I got to read you this part from Lad's book, uh, The Gospel and the Kingdom, because again, I just couldn't put it any better than he does. Uh, It says, when Christ comes, we will receive the full harvest, 
right? The fullness of life from God's spirit. But God has already given us his spirit as a first fruit, a foretaste, an initial experience of the future heavenly life. Has the realization gripped you that the very life of heaven itself dwells within you right here and right now? Did you ever know that? I'm afraid we live most of our life in the terms of promise. We often sing of the future, and so we ought to sing. Our gospel is a gospel of glorious promise and hope. Yes, the best, the glorious best is yet to come. And yet, we are not to live alone for the future because the future has already begun. The age to come has reached into this age. The kingdom of God has come into you. The eternal life which belongs to tomorrow is here today. The fellowship which we shall know when we see him face to face is already ours in part, but in reality. The transforming life of the Spirit of God, which will one day transform our bodies, has come to indwell us and to transform our characters and our personalities. This is what eternal life means. This is what it means to be saved. It means to go about every day in the present evil age, living the life of heaven. It means that every local fellowship of God's people who have shared this life should live together and worship and serve together as those who enjoy a foretaste of heaven here on earth. This is what the fellowship of a Christian church ought to be. May God help us if to live the life of the age to come in the midst of an evil age. God has already brought us into fellowship with himself. This is the promise, the down payment, the earnest, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The life of the age to come. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Woo! My, oh my. Oh, the Spirit. I'm like, man, I need to study the Holy Spirit again. I missed some stuff. That's good. That's good. Fourth implication of the already aspect of God's kingdom has to do with our response. So if Jesus is king of the world, then following him means way more than knowing the right passcode to get into heaven. If Jesus is king, following him means allegiance. Very, very imperfect allegiance, but allegiance nonetheless. Scholar Michael Williams puts it this way. He says, to seek the kingdom of God is to bring our entire lives under the rule of the king who lays claim on every area of human endeavor. And this is, of course, why there is so much focus in the Bible on how we are to live and on the kind of people that we are to be. We are new creation people. We are heaven people. We are people of the age to come living in the present age. If Jesus is king, following him means living our lives in allegiance to him. I'll tell you what, one here, this is like on the ground, super practical. Um, I don't talk to my kids much anymore about trust Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die. Trust Jesus so you go to hell. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's bad to do that. But my language has changed. And it's become trust Jesus because he's king of the whole world. And, And he's a forgiving, merciful, loving, redeeming, awesomest king that you could ever imagine. And he has come to make all the sad things untrue 
everything every human has ever wanted. He's come to make it happen here. And when you trust him, you get to live under his beautiful, good, wonderful rule. And is it easy? Heck no. I don't say heck with my kids. It is not easy, but it is so good and it is so worth it. That's how this study has affected, just on feet on the ground, man, it's affected how I present the gospel to my kids. I don't need kids that know the right passcode. I want kids who love King Jesus and, and realize that living under his reign and his rule is the best thing ever. It's just so good. It's just, it's, again, the go to heaven when you die isn't wrong. It's just not big enough. It's not big enough. All right, a whole lot more implications related to the church's mission that we're going to cover in week seven. All right, we're going to get outside the walls of the church, talk about what do we do out there? If God's redeeming the whole shebang, what, what is our relationship to that? Do we, do we just check out a Bible study and all become social justice warriors? What do we do? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hash that out a little bit. All right, last point. Kingdom of God is a not yet, is not yet here in its fullness. We still await its consummation at the second coming of Christ when the prophetic hope for the day of the Lord will be fulfilled, overcoming all kingdoms but one and fully restoring all of creation so that God may be all in all. You know, Isaiah, when he said, um, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill the sea, (sighs) that's what it'll be. That's what it'll be. Here's the big implication of the not yet aspect of God's kingdom. Life in the overlap is really hard. Life in the overlap is really hard. Because the kingdom of God is not yet the only kingdom, because other wills besides God's are still being done here on earth, Suffering and sorrow, grief and loss, brokenness and pain are ever-present realities, and it is imperative that we recognize this. We do no one, including ourselves, any favors when we just pretend that, oh, we've got the Spirit and we're great. I'm too blessed to be fill-in-the-blank. No, you're sad. You're grieving. Your life is falling apart. Let's just say it, right? Because we live in the in-between. There's a name for what happens when we forget that we live in the overlap, that we still await the full consummation of the kingdom. It's called the prosperity gospel. Now, to give our prosperity gospel friends some credit, the Bible is full of promises of prosperity and healing. Where they go wrong is in the timing of the fulfillment of those promises. For now, other kingdoms still remain. Other wills that are opposed to God's will are still present. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. And we need to beware of anything that downplays or ignores that tension. That would include... um, I'm going to use the word most because I want to be charitable. Most forms of name it, claim it prayer, uh, most forms of the word of faith movement, 
most forms of deliverance services. Those kinds of things are generally, not always, generally rooted in an over-realized eschatology, meaning they fail to acknowledge the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. And again, I don't, I, you guys, you heard me the first week, I don't like lumping everybody into one category, all right? And so I'm making these broad sweeping statements. Know that there are people that are doing good work that wouldn't fall under this category, but that we would probably label whatever, right? When we fail to acknowledge the not yet, you can, it, it leads to so many people, this sense of just, it sets them up for grave disappointment. And then when the promise doesn't pan out, when the healing doesn't come, when the handicap remains, when the chronic pain remains, when the loved one dies, then they are blamed for not having enough faith or not praying hard enough. No, the reason that happened is because we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. And life in the middle is very very hard. One last observation. After inaugurating the kingdom of God, Jesus ascended to the Father and was the message of the early church, Jesus has gone up to heaven, let's join him there. No. Remarkably, no. I love the N.T. Wright quote, page 94 of your workbook. He says, at no point, I'll let you get there if you want to. He says, at no point in the Gospels or Acts does anyone say anything remotely like, Jesus has gone into heaven, let's be sure we can follow him. They say, rather, Jesus is in heaven, ruling the whole world, and he will one day return to make that rule complete. And that is the hope that we have. That is the joy of being a part of the kingdom of God right now, right here. It's incredible. All right. Any, that was a lot, as it always is. Any particular questions? Anything that needs to be repeated? Anything from the workbook that you're just like, this was weird and it didn't make sense or whatever before we close? Again, I keep putting my email address at the bottom. Thank you, those of you that have emailed me typos. You've emailed me. It, wonderful. No, I, like, really, I'm like, thank you. This is what I need. And, of course, you can save it till the end if you, if you would like as well. Um, but those are very helpful. Anything before I close in prayer? Yes. Mm-hmm. The timing. So a lot of people like to just, you know, rip on prosperity gospel because they, they're, they're like, they're just, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, the Bible does say a lot about prosperity and health and healing and wholeness. We read a lot of that last week when we were studying Isaiah. So where the prosperity gospel gets it wrong is not necessarily um, in the, um, well, let me say it this way. Let me put it positively. Where they get it right 
is that the Bible does promise that stuff. Where there is, where they get it wrong is in the timing, the timing in which it's going to be fulfilled. So does God still heal? Absolutely. Does he do miraculous things? Absolutely. Does he reveal himself in dreams and visions and, oh my gosh, talk to missionaries. Whoa, he's doing some cool stuff. Um, But the ultimate fulfillment of the prosperity, the shalom, wholeness, the full, complete healing, guarantee of healing, all of that is going to come once the kingdom is fully consummated and Christ has returned. In, in the in-between time, it's just not dependable. Like, does God sometimes heal? Yeah, I bet we all know somebody he has. Does God sometimes choose not to? Yes, and we all know somebody. So it's just not a, um, the message that if you have enough faith— A, B, and C is going to happen because look at this promise in the Bible. It just doesn't work that way this side of the second coming. So that's what I was saying. Is that clearer? You don't have to agree with me, but is it at least clear what I'm saying? Okay. All right. Yeah. So these, uh, yeah, we just can't guarantee... Oh my goodness. So I have a friend who's handicapped. And so people, well-meaning, beautiful people will stop her. I'm going to pray for you to be healed. Or I know a a guy, there's a deliverance service you can go to. And she's like, no, I'm going to be in this wheelchair till I die. Like that, (laughs) right? And it's it's not helpful or theologically sound to make the assumption that if you go to this prayer service, or if you go to this, then you, you're, you know, you're, you're good. It's just not the norm. It's certainly not the norm. Are there exceptions? Sure, I'm not going to argue with that, but it's certainly not the norm. In, and the reason it's not the norm is because we are here. We're in the middle. Over here, 100% the norm. Like, there's not going to be any of that here. But in the middle, you know, it's... This is going to sound disrespectful, but it's kind of anybody's guess what God's going to decide to do as we pray and we seek him for healing and we seek him for wholeness and we seek him for uh, solutions to our suffering. So, anyway. We must ask, we must ask, absolutely, um, because, again, the, the future age, the kingdom of God has come. The Spirit is alive and working, and again, that's why you just need to hang out with some missionaries in some closed countries, and you're like, "Woo! there's some cool stuff that God is doing. That is just, I mean, mind-blowing. So the Spirit is on the move. New creation is on the move. Aslan is on the move, you guys. And, and he is bringing new creation to the ends of the earth. And it's awesome, and it's exciting, and it's cool. Um, but a, um, a, theolo- a theology of suffering that denies the, the hard realities of, of the already not yet tension um, is just not a theology that can hold the weight of people's pain. And it causes more hardship than it does uh, help. Because then people are left to believe they're the reason that their friend died of cancer. No. No. Yeah. 
I think she said, is there a tendency then for this to cause unbelief in believers? Yeah, it can really, it can. Um, I know the Mandisa, the artist, Mandy, she, that's part of her story. She went through a deep, dark depression because she had a friend. She just believed with her whole heart God was going to heal her, and he, he didn't. And it was rattling. And she came back to, yeah, he, he's worked. And, but yeah, it's really hard. So, all right, well, we're out of time. So I'm going to close in prayer. Email me any, if you need further clarification, I will be happy to give it. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these women who are willing to labor in the study of your word. And that is certainly how it has felt. Um, but oh, how good it is when we get to a place of um, just understanding a concept that maybe we haven't understood or, or a, a truth just coming to light in a new way. Um, and Lord, certainly um, I, I, <laughs> we're not all going to leave remembering all the things, but God, I pray that you would take one truth, just a little bit of truth from today's lesson and enable each person in this room to apply it to just a little bit of life and in doing so that we will be able to walk this thing out and see the fruit of the time that we have spent um, in your words, studying, laboring through these concepts. We thank you for uh, just the, the beauty of this idea that eternity is now. And I pray that you'd help us to live into that more and more um, as we grow in our, in our understanding of these things. We love you so much. We praise you. We thank you that you are healer that you are um, King and Lord. And uh, we just want to fall more and more in love with you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.